everybody. Welcome to Down the Hatch, the podcast about swallowing. In this month's edition, the title is Dysphagia Documentation Dilemma. Dun dun dun. Ooh, it's a tough one, guys. I'm going to get into the background about why this topic came up in the podcast, but there are a couple of notes that I want to keep you abreast of before we get started. The first thing is that when we were recording, it happened to be the same day that I was being followed by a photojournalism student at the University of Florida. So you're going to hear some shutter sounds from her camera in the background. Also, turns out that there are quite a number of helicopters flying over us again. We're near to a hospital, so it comes with the territory. Sorry about that, but it's part of the gig. Now, there are a couple of things that I said I was going to edit, but I didn't edit just because the point in this podcast is for you guys to kind of be like a fly in the wall listening to a Swallowing Geeks chat away. So I hope you enjoy those very real moments. And in those real moments, there will be quite a number of Prince references. I hope you enjoy those too. And for all you fees lovers out there, please know that while we mention video fluoroscopy consistently, much of what we're seeing about documentation applies to fees as well. All right, guys, hope you enjoy it. Okay, so this is yet another Down the Hatch podcast. And the goal of this podcast is to address an important issue. And that important issue is whether or not MBS reports or video fluoroscopic reports give the kind of information that we think that they should. So I just want everybody to introduce themselves and then I will talk about the background that led to this topic, okay? Great. My name is Michelle Singer. I'm a first year PhD student working with Dr. Humbert and I have a clinical background. I um, worked in clinical care for about 13 years before I came back to school and I worked across several different environments. I spent most of my time in acute care, but I also worked in SNFs, outpatients, and rehabs. My name is Nicole Roth and I'm a speech pathologist at a rehab hospital in Gainesville, Florida. Um, I've worked in a variety of settings, pediatrics to adults, um, nursing facilities, and home health. I'm Alicia. You all know me by now if you've been <laughs> listening to the podcast. I am a PhD student, but similar to Michelle, I have uh, clinical experience prior to getting my PhD. Uh, primarily, I've worked in acute inpatient care, but have dabbled a little in outpatient. Uh, Michelle and I actually worked together for five years, and Nicole and I have recently worked together for the past year in inpatient rehab as I've done a little PRN. And I'm Ianessa Humbert and I am an associate professor and my life has primarily been in the research lab for swallowing and I am now going to discuss why this topic came up. So as some of you know, uh, Dr. Plowman and I have a course called Critical Thinking and Dysphagia Management and we usually open this course with a section called Elucidating Inconsistencies in Dysphagia Management. And I know that each of you guys have seen that at some point. And by each of you guys, I mean the three folks in the room, not (laughs) everybody listening. (laughs) And at the end of this section, inevitably, after I've, to some degree, decimated much of what people think (laughs) they were doing relative to their peers, saying we're actually very not consistent, there's not much that's as standardized as we think there should be, 
Um, typically what happens is somebody raises their hand and says, what am I supposed to do about reports that come to me that do not tell me anything that I can use? And in fact, while that question comes up every time, it's never the goal of the talk. I think it comes up because we're talking about things that aren't standardized and things that affect people's clinical decision-making. So ASHA asked me to do something for their business. I forget exactly what it's called, but that's a leader. No, it's not right. Ashley Leader. Before that, in the summer, they're, um, you know, their um, business thing, the private practice. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, but I don't know the name. Yeah, this will get edited out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did a talk for Asha, and I talked about elucidating inconsistencies in dysphagia management. And they specifically, there was a question that came up just on cue when I opened it up and I said, what questions do people have? And the person said, what do we do about MBS reports that are, for lack of a better word, crummy? And actually went back to listen to that recording and be like, was the word crummy used? The word was in fact used. <laughs> and the reason why, so then Asha came to me later and said, months later, we would like you to write a piece for the Asha leader, which will be out May 1st on this topic, that you have your evaluating clinician, the person who has been sent this patient who they don't know, to do an evaluation from the treating clinician, the person who's in a position where they are unable to do their own instrumental evaluation, and they're looking to the evaluating clinician to give them real information that they can use to practice, to make treatment decisions based on. And there seems to be a rift between the two groups in that the cl treating clinicians often feel like, and the question always comes from a treating clinician. It's never an evaluating clinician is going, why are my reports not translating? Because they're done. They're one and done with this patient, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas a treating clinician continually relies on other people to do this very important one time sometimes test, meaning this patient might not get the chance to do another floor for a long time and they're writing everything on this. And it's like nectar thick, recommended, patient aspirated on thin. Um, tried medicine, did work, or just something like that. And like, mm -hmm. what do I do with this information? So the reason we have you guys all here is because you, we represent a pretty decent range, right? Mm -hmm. So there's me, the research junkie. There's Nicole, the clinician junkie. And then there's Alicia and Michelle who've transitioned from the clinic in multiple domains to research. Mm -hmm. And why does research matter in this? It might not be obvious to people, but research is documentation. Mm -hmm. It is precise documentation in such a way the, the best research papers are ones where anyone can read it and replicate it identically. But that is not the goal of documentation in the clinic, is it? Mm -hmm. So that anyone can look at that and say, I know exactly what you did every single step of the way. People aren't trained to write documents, right? They learn on the job, and if they learned well, it goes well. If they didn't lear learn well, it's hard to tell someone you, you stink after 10 years or whatever, <laughs> whatever people really want to say that comes out in these meetings. So I want you guys to just chime in however you feel like chiming in on the issue. Yeah. I just read something really recently, I think it was yesterday, that Bonnie Martin-Harris at, she's now at Northwestern, gave this really prestigious talk and in that she talked about, um, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris is sort of a pioneer in our field in standardizing Not the story, video. Not she is a pioneer. Yeah, exactly. she has been amazing. She's the creator of MBSIMP, which is all about standardization. All about standardization, and I didn't know this, and I'm MBSIMP certified, but I didn't really know the background of it, and she had mentioned that when she was seeing a patient, that the patient had had 10 fluoros, and she had access to all 10 of the floral reports, 
the patient came into her care and based on the flora report, she actually had to go and do flora number 11 oh my to know what to treat with that wow. patient because she just didn't have the information from mm -hmm. the reports that she needed to know what to treat. Um, all the reports were completely different from each other, but she wasn't sure had the swallow not changed and this was just different interpretations. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really, you know, it really kind of brought together all this concept and this idea because I think we've all experienced that mm -hmm. situation where you get a floral report and you're just like, I don't know what to treat. And you have to make the decision, do I send this person out for another floro? Do I guess what the speech pathologist meant? Do I try to reach out to the speech pathologist? Do I try to get access to the floro itself? And every, every one of those situations has a pro and a con. Yeah. Right? Sometimes Absolutely. it can be time consuming, it can be confrontational, mm -hmm. it can be hazardous to the patient that maybe you start treating something that actually wasn't impaired. It could be, uh, cost them more money. Cost yeah. them more money, yeah. increasing more radiation. I mean, so you have to weigh all those things out, but yeah. we shouldn't have to do that. It's frustrating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I've been guilty of writing reports that I don't think were very useful to the next uh, clinician practicing with that patient. So I think some things in acute care. Um, that influenced that were efficiency standards and getting mm -hmm. things done in a quick time. Mm -hmm. Like, you just really have to rush through things sometimes, and I don't think I was writing the best reports. I think educational background um, held me back a little bit. I talked a lot about bolus flow issues and not the pathophysiology. Mm -hmm. So it was um, really eye-opening when uh, tables were turned and I began working in a sniff and I was the one receiving those reports <laughs> <laughs> and when I went back to acute care after that everything changed my reports mm -hmm. were very very different yeah it is I think on acute care we it's easy to focus on what can they eat what can they not eat mm -hmm. and in the report is reflected by that is this is what they aspirated and this is what they didn't aspirate and then in acute care it's adios diagnose and adios right you send mm -hmm. them out and you're like great have them on this beautiful diet but the therapist doesn't know what to treat when they get to, and Nicole, I'm sure you can speak to that the most, you work in rehab, right? So right. this is your bread and butter. Right. We get, actually, when we start talking about this topic, I thought about when I lived in Georgia, and I worked in a couple of different nursing homes, and then I also um, did home health. And so I was at the mercy of the clinicians, and you would have to go about 45 minutes to different hospitals that could actually do a swallow study and I got to where I would refer how about we go to this specific facility because I knew what I would get from the other ones and so I always kind of felt like sometimes it wasn't worth the mm -hmm. you know the money for the paper what mm -hmm. I would get and so wow that's interesting and it came into play when my son was having um, swallowing problems so I knew I would not take him to one town <laughs> <laughs> and I drove 45 minutes with him because I knew the speech pathologist. I was able to go in. I was able to watch Eli's swallow study, converse with her, and then also the physician that was there, and recommendations were made based on that. And I just knew that I wouldn't send my son to someone, so I wasn't going to send my patients either. Yeah. And that's sad. <laughs> um, it's, it's a bad testimony to kind of the state of some of our therapists and I know for myself, I'm really excited to be here because meeting Alicia and then just getting involved and we all need more education. That's what we were talking about <laughs> earlier. I need more continuing education mm -hmm. and I need to realize where I'm weak. And But so let me ask you this. If, if I had a continuing education course called How to Write Reports, would you show up? 
I would now, definitely. But before, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Yeah. yeah. But let's say you were cruising along. You had met Alicia, right? The queen of report writing. Oh God. Um, let's her. framers and put them on the wall. Yes. Okay? Yes. The queen. You had met the queen, and you were like, "What are you talking about? I'm a clinician of how many years, Nicole?" Since 98. Okay, there you go. So you're a clinician of since 98, because I can't do math. <laughs> and um, and it, is now six, right, it is 6.30 on a Wednesday night, so don't even try me right now. Trying to not get my PhD taken away. Okay? Um, and so you at that point would be like, what the heck? This must be for CFYs. And I'm going to suggest my CFYs go. Or this must be for students. This must be, this could never be for, you know, someone who's had this many years of experience. Right. You think you might go? I think I might go, but I kind of am a different bird, I think, on some things than maybe others. Okay, so do you think that your colleagues would go? I think the ones now, maybe some of the others I've had in the past, no way. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I guess hindsight's twenty twenty, so I put myself in a different position, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Kind of, you don't know what you don't know, yeah. too. It's so, true. like, That's I started true. at Hopkins. I wrote terrible reports. We had a patient <laughs> that came, oh my gosh, that I had seen five years ago that came back for a research study. It was this crazy story. They brought me this report and they said, We saw a speech pathologist in acute care five years ago. We brought the report and I pulled up the report and it was my report from five years ago. <laughs> and I was dun, like, dun, dun. Oh my gosh, I, I have the patient, I didn't remember he is was really sick at the time and it was five years later and it was this moment of like once I got past that oh my god this is so crazy what a weird coincidence and I read the report I was like ooh. <laughs> you know what it's like it's like when you look back at pictures of like that outfit you thought was the bomb in high school and you're like lord have mercy yeah. <laughs> you could not have been my friend let me wear those shoes those were the worst you yeah. know and you're like I thought I was so hot but at the time I didn't know that I was writing reports yeah. that later self looks at and says that's not sufficient. But that's what growth is, and that's okay. See, that's the argument here. Where No one is saying, oh my gosh, someone is going to put on Facebook a Dr. Humbert report from like (laughs) 1990 or whenever and be like, so, think you're so bad, eh? You know what I mean? And it's going to be like some jacked up report. (laughs) But all we're saying is, at what point do we say, hey, field let's look at our look in the mirror and figure out whether or not we're doing our patients a disservice and let's step aside from okay so maybe I didn't know what I was doing and maybe I want to learn like you're saying Nicole and how can we improve but I worry about individuals who say I would never want to change anything I do because Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with it and even even Alicia, you might go, you know what, actually, in a year, I probably would have adjusted this. Yeah. And your reports are great, yeah. right? Great. I think people can look at them right now and say, I know just what I would treat. But we live and we grow and we learn, but we can't be stagnant. Yeah. Right. Well, I think there's maybe people listening right now that are like, do I write a good report? Do I write a bad report? I don't know. So how do we decide so let, that? Well, let's talk about what are some mm-hmm. things that you want to see in a report as a rehab therapist, as a acute care clinician, as a quote, diagnostician, um, what are the main components? So your question, Alicia, is what should, so we've identified the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Have we? Wait, let's identify the problem. <laughs> we, we cannot assume the problem is clear. We can't say what it should be when we haven't said what it is yet. So one thing that I identified is this um, sort of like they have aspiration, then you're sort of less high and dry. Mm -hmm. This person aspirated. 
that's not why they're here. Right. <laughs> I just I have I'm there because I think they're aspirating. Well, I see it as different levels because mm -hmm. I've experienced this quite a bit and I've really categorized it in this way. The bare bones report that I get is one where they literally just tell me, well, real bare bones is what diet are they on? That tells you nothing, mm -hmm. right? A level up from that is they tell you what was penetrated or aspirated and that's it. And they don't tell you why. No mechanism. No, right. no mechanism, mm -hmm. but they do say you at least know, okay, they should or should not be on this diet. That's it. That's right. all you know. Right. You don't know, though, if it was a one-time aspiration event, if it was the first swallow. You mm -hmm. don't know how many times Were they times cued? Were they tried. not cued? Right. Did they have to did they tell you to clear? You don't know the mode of delivery. Before, during, or after the swallow? You don't know. That's information. Right. Response to those penetration yeah. and aspiration events a lot of times aren't included. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The next level that I, that is... So it sounds like level one is bolus flow only. Yep. Okay. Level two is there is some attempt at describing physiology, mm -hmm. but I think this is one of my biggest pet peeves mm -hmm. in report writing is why people break this section up so much. So hmm. in the beginning, you just have like sort of a list of what is wrong in the swallow. They say patient had reduced tongue base retraction, patient had delayed swallow initiation, patient had reduced UAS opening, period. Next column when? is... <laughs> They aspirated thin, they were good with nectar, nectar thick liquid, and there's no connection between the physiology and why, what caused the aspiration, why did it happen? Okay, so level two is um, minimal phys mechanism. Yep. So you no connection between the mechanism and the right. bolus You could flow. even have pages describing the physiology, yeah. just you, saying what was wrong, but if it doesn't connect to the airway, you know, if there's invasion, airway invasion, or if there's residue, or what's happening, and how that reflects your recommendation, then mm -hmm. it's pointless. Mm -hmm. Because So it sounds to me like what you're saying is, you can give me a list of all the aberrant bolus flow, all the things mm -hmm. that went wrong. You can give me a list of all the mechanistic issues, but I can't connect that mechanism yeah to the bolus flow. I'm, I'm just guessing. It's like two word banks and it's a matching game. Right. Like match the bolus to, the, yeah. I shouldn't have to do that work. That's why you were paid to do this. Exactly. And that's why you charge the patient to make the connection for me. Right. Okay. And I and I think this is one of the most common situations. So the third level is being able to say, for instance, patient began with thin liquids, a five ml by cup, uncued, mm -hmm. patient aspirated due to blah, 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 blah right, whatever they aspirate for, yep. you know, no laryngeal vestibule closure, aspiration was, we waited for five seconds, no response, patient was asked, is anything gone the wrong way, patient said no. That's a lot of information on bolus one. Yeah. And if you got all of that information, you'd be like, okay, wow, right. I, I was there, I felt like you were, this was Harry Potter, like, yeah. you know, like the, the tapes on tape as opposed to, you know, being there right. for the movie. And I don't think you need to go bolus by bolus necessarily and make your report five pages long. It doesn't even have to be five pages no, to do that. That could no. be one whole sentence. But summarize what happened and why in all the situations. With all trials of thin liquid, patient had delayed initiation that resulted in aspiration during the swallow. Mm -hmm. with Unless no it wasn't all. Right, but I'm just giving an example mm -hmm. of, you know, tell me the features, tell me why and how the patient responded. Because you see that a lot where you, maybe you have a good sense of why the patient aspirated, but it's so important, especially to those treating therapists, to know 
was there a response to that? Because that's helpful in treatment and at the bedside if you know if your patient has sensation or so not. That's a, so that's another level. First is aberrant bolus flow, physiology, connecting the two, patient response, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So those are four levels that will tell people a lot. What do you guys think, Nicole and Michelle? Well, I think it challenges me. The more we talk about <laughs> it, the more I think about Oh, the ones I just wrote this week. What did I leave out? Mm -hmm. Because I saw it so clearly in my mind, Mm -hmm. right? but what I didn't articulate in writing. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's how I started coaching the students that I had at Hopkins. I wanted them to think about it in a way like they were the receiving clinicians. Mm -hmm. So write it so that it clearly creates that picture in your mind of exactly what happened and the information that you would want to have as a treating clinician. So like you were saying, the pathophysiology or how do we structure our treatment? Mm -hmm. And that's changing the thought process like that, I think really helps some of the students that I had. I always tell people to think about it. You know that game where uh, you hold a piece of paper on your forehead and it has a word and somebody else has to describe Mm -hmm. it to you? Mm -hmm. You should be able to describe, heads up, you should be able to describe a fluoro to somebody in words so that as you're saying it, they can just picture the whole fluoro Mm -hmm. from beginning to end. That's exactly the example I give. Well, that's Mm -hmm. why in this year's dysphagia class, I changed it to where we needed to have problem-based learning and we would show them fluoros and they had to have a, see, helicopters. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so they'd have to have a sentence about both flow, they'd have to have a sentence about physiology and a sentence connecting the two and patient response. And yep. if they didn't have all of those, they didn't have all the points. Right. And we would then I would show them reports that didn't and they'd go, well, I don't understand this. And sometimes I would show them a report in the floor and I'd say, match the report to the floro. Mm-hmm. Or I'd give the classes versions to each other and say, does that does group A's floral match the report? Mm-hmm. And if the group right next to you, and you saw the same three swallows, has a completely different report, there's a serious issue with the way that we're reporting information. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, another piece of this is, as a therapist reading these reports, you also want to read that your that the clinician that did the fluoro did everything they could mm-hmm. in the fluoro, right? So if there was an Absolutely. aspiration event, Ooh, so we're what taking was, more steps. We're taking yes. more steps. Okay, so first is identify what the patient did on their own without your intervention, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So now you're saying, so let's say we'll take that same example. Patient aspirated on, I don't know, five ml cup sips of thin, mm-hmm. no laryngeal vestibule closure appreciated, went into this airway during the swallow, patient did not respond after a few seconds of waiting to see if they response. When asked, they didn't identify in the airway. Mm-hmm. Next bolus attempted to probe whether or not that this is the step you're at now. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. What did you do to um, challenge that physiology to try to eliminate the aspiration? So whether it was a compensatory strategy, whether it was um, whatever. I mean, there's a whole host of things that you can do to try to alleviate that or to make the physiology better, right? And you wanna know what those steps were in the fluoro. Right. And when that's not described to me, I'm always left wondering, well, what if they did this? Mm -hmm. And then it brings me right back to the beginning where I'm like, now I kinda wanna take this person back to fluoro Mm -hmm. because I wanna see what if we gave them a larger bolus, maybe the increased sensory input in the oral cavity would cause 
an increase in LVC, laryngeal mm-hmm. closure. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that. Oh gosh, now I'm torn again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, I think that maybe people are doing this in Florida but not documenting it. Maybe they're not well, doing it. There was. Um, you don't know. <laughs> there's an entry on Facebook in the Med SLP forum recently that said, "Hey, I got this patient that had one swallow thin, one of puree, one of solids." And that was it. That was the extent of the floral. Right. And what are you supposed to do with that? Okay, Michelle, tell me that my pet peeve didn't happen. Did people jump in and start giving recommendations? You know, sometimes they do. <laughs> That's, there, but there's a few that... Well, obviously, you should have done a chin talk. So. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, what? That's why when I write reports and I do a compensatory strategy or something, I always start the sentence with why I did it. Yeah. In order to improve X. I did this in so order to what you're talking about now are physiological rationales that is a deep cut do you guys remember I don't know if you ever did those iTunes sort of songs like a pops or songs of the 90s mm-hmm. you can get your basics and then when you were in the deep cuts it was some stuff that no one ever heard of <laughs> yeah. like, Ooh, you did not bring out Prince of <laughs> oh my god right? Yeah, that's what deep cuts are. They're like, okay, yeah, when doves cry, but have you heard about controversy? Okay, Mm -hmm. so we're at that level where you're saying, oh my gosh, you're going to identify stuff and you're going to tell me that you're probing the mechanism and give me a physiologic rationale. Now I am reading Harry Potter and I can see the lightning bolt on his forehead because yeah. how beautifully it was described. Yeah. I didn't even need the movie. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that is, but that, what does that require? That's a level of understanding mm-hmm. of swallowing that you would even have the knowledge to even say in order to, uh, you know, increase the duration of laryngeal closure, I'm going to do a chin tuck because we know that those studies have been done. But most people wouldn't even think that, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you have to really understand how right. swallowing is modified based on what? The research literature. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you learn that because you you trial compensatory strategies and you see what works and doesn't work, right? So especially, you know, for people listening that are like, oh my gosh, like now I feel overwhelmed that I don't know. Sometimes you have to you don't just not try compensatory strategies because you're just like, well, I'm not really sure what's going to work. Sometimes you just, especially when you're new, you throw stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is specifically a skill that evolves over your career. As long as you're continuing to engage yourself in learning more about swallowing throughout your career, you mm-hmm. learn that yeah. increasing bolus volume increases laryngeal vestibule closure. You learn these things. And you incorporate, you just keep layering into your reports and make them better and better and a little richer, mm-hmm. so that when somebody else reads your report, they learn. Oh, I didn't know that increasing bolus volume would increase LBC. I'm going to report that in mine next. I'm going to try that. So I think it's has a ripple effect when you start documenting really well. Other people start documenting really well, mm-hmm. and I think that that has. Are you the drop that hits the ocean? The placid ocean, Alicia? Me? Are you, are no. you the report that is <laughs> going to be the ripple it? around? No. I so, copy some of her language. Good. <laughs> there you go. Ripple ring number one around okay. the Alicia right drink. Yes. <laughs> you guys. But I think that's really important because when I worked in a rural sniff, I would send, like, the patients that I wanted to go get for, was often could not because mm-hmm. of finances and uh, insurance. So, um, it was the cost at the cost of the facility to send the patient mm-hmm. the transportation and the cost of the study within the first 100 days. So they often didn't want to send them for studies that they didn't see they were didn't spend the money. necessary. Mm-hmm. So I would have a patient for 100 days without a study unless I could 
really fight for them and get them to go. So it was incredibly important for that clinician to give me the most information that I could possibly get. And so I would often call them before the patient got there and, and let them know the situation and let them know the kind of information I needed. And I think it was incredibly important to make sure that um, you have a relationship with mm -hmm. the person that's mm -hmm. doing the studies for you. I think so too. When I did home health, I would try to go with my patients. Mm -hmm. to the speech therapist that I really liked who gave me good reports as well. But it was because we had the rapport and she allowed me to be in the floral suite with her and we were able to talk about things, try different things based on I was the treating clinician. I mm -hmm. knew how the patient had been doing. So, so I worked in other facilities where we had either mobile fees come in or mobile MBS in the vans. And sometimes it extended my day for me to take the time to go out and be with my patient while someone else was evaluating them, but I thought it was important for me to see how that evaluation was being done to create that relationship with the other clinicians so mm -hmm. that I knew in the future whether or not um, I could really trust my patients with them. Mm -hmm. And then I would stay later that day to you know, continue with the rest of my caseload, but I thought it was really important to take that extra time to have that relationship and that information. So it sounds like we're talking about a transition between what can the evaluating clinician do? Alicia really elaborated on things that should be the report, but you guys are nicely segued to what can the treating clinician do? It's not just about, hey, you're writing crappy reports or crummy reports is what the, the word was. Let's, let's not make it worse than it is, right? Um, with regard to the clinician who is the treating person, it's there. This is ultimately, as I say, this is my patient. Mm -hmm. And there are a couple things. So one is sort of going around the obstacle. Nicole, you talked about that. You're like, <laughs> hey, guess what? That's a resourceful thing to do. It's efficient. Mm -hmm. You get what you need. Mm -hmm. But some people don't have that option. Right. So, Michelle, another option is to build a rapport mm -hmm. with this person and say, hey, I have a patient who's doing this, that, and the other, and generally they're grateful because they see that they have a patient who they don't know, and they know that their floral reports for the patients they've done a clinical exam on mm -hmm. might be better than the patients for whom they have zero information. And that's another complaint. When the discussion continues and these meetings that I'm talking about, often an evaluating clinician will be like, hey, I'm on the other side, and I can't tell you how many times I see a patient wheel to me with a note on their lap. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I don't know who this patient is, I know very little and I wish I could get more information so I could service the patient better. Mm -hmm. And we all know that our florals are supposed to be an extension of the clinical examination. It's supposed to set us up for the best possible floro. But can you imagine if you always came in blindfolded until the floral, mm -hmm. right? So they don't always have the ability to reach out to somebody because the likelihood they're, they're gonna find you it's harder than you're gonna find them because you see their name and you know mm -hmm. the institute that your patient went to, mm -hmm. but they may not know who the clinician is who's sending the patient to them. So Michelle, I think that's a great suggestion. So speaking of one of my favorite Prince songs, Controversy, um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on when there is discord between the treating clinician and evaluating clinician because one feels, probably the evaluating clinician, that the other feels that they are less competent than they should be. So what I mean is some people have said, I don't want to deal with telling that clinician that their reports aren't good enough because they have told me that they have a template they follow this template. Every patient goes through the same car wash. I don't care if you're a Mack truck or a Porsche 
you're going through the same car wash and we don't care how clean you are they won't say that but ultimately that is what happens some things get more clean than others and you know they don't feel like it's their job to end up having this this um unpleasant experience so they just deal with it do you guys have any thoughts on the best way for people in those situations to open up communication and trust so that the patients get what they need um, and people's feelings are not the center of the issue. <laughs> Silence is oh, well. <laughs> You're like, you're describing Crickets. my life right now. <laughs> well, the way you set it up, it kind of sounds like the evaluating clinician maybe isn't open to feedback. Is that... Well, it's hard to know whether or not they're open to anything because we don't know what people's perceptions are. Right. We just know the treating clinician is avoiding that um, interaction. Yeah. So that is, I can only say what the other response is. And maybe, Nicole, that's what you did. You're like, why should I spend my time telling this person they don't write good reports? I'm just going one town over. Mm -hmm. But you also had the opportunity to do that with your son, mm -hmm. right? Right. But what what if that is the hospital that your patients go to, yeah. and this is the SLP that does that work? Those patients need to be serviced, and we have two professionals where if they could figure out how to communicate, um, the patients would get the best care. Mm -hmm. I think, let me just blanket statement, and I think I speak for everybody in saying this is a really difficult topic, and I'm somebody that I don't mind confrontation at all. Like, I thrive on it, sort of. Shocker. Um, <laughs> but it, this is really hard, and I've thought a lot about this, actually, because this isn't like a, oh, I can remember one time where this was the case. This happens a lot, mm -hmm. probably more than it doesn't happen, mm -hmm. and I find that the way to approach it is to be a little bit, to ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and say, instead of, well, you should have done this, it's, I'm just super curious, like, what was your thought mm -hmm. process behind this? Or, you know, what's your rationale? And I, it's not taking a naive approach, but it kind of is a little bit because maybe that person actually has something to offer that you can learn. And I think opening up the lines of communication, it does put that person on the spot, but that's okay. We're professionals, and I think that that's something that we need to be able to feel comfortable with being in a medical field. It's something that every medical professional has to deal with, and I think that there is a, a way to go about it and a way to not go about it. Um, and one way to go about it, and your suggestion is just to ask questions to open the discussion. Just to open mm -hmm. the discussion by mm -hmm. asking questions and saying... Can I, can I just, can I take you one step farther? Sure. What happens when you say, so I'm just curious, your reports, my question is already damning. I'm like, <laughs> you can't, your, your reports have three sentences and, no, I'm just lying. Okay, so your reports give me quite a bit of information about swallowing safety. I know whether or not my patients aspirate or not, and that's very helpful for me because I can't confirm that at the bedside. I'm just curious about whether or not you see any utility in adding some physiology so I can, because I'm treating the physiology, so knowing what's problematic helps me to treat that. Like, is it the UVS? Is it the tongue? What are your thoughts on adding those two reports? Is that a nasty question? I would take are, it. I'm going I'm to rephrase it how okay, I'm... Okay. Same situation how I would ask Give it to me the right I like way. the beginning where it's, you know, I get a lot of information on safe and unsafe. Uh -huh. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll call the clinician and I'll say, hey, 
I'm seeing this patient at one o'clock and I need to treat this patient on what his impairment is. Um, I didn't see it in the report. Can you tell me what caused this patient to aspirate? And it goes one of two ways. Either they say, well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> and then it's, okay, well, let's figure this out because I don't really know what to treat right now. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, he had um, delayed initiation and, mm -hmm. you know, it caused him to aspirate before the swallow. And I'll say, oh, awesome. That's super helpful. Um, now I know what to treat with this patient. Um, if you don't mind, just as like a courtesy for me, if you could include that in your report, it makes it a lot easier for me as the treating clinician. Wow. So, that is a lot of stuff I've never done in my life. I know. <laughs> you do have to swallow, wait, but I'm, you do have to swallow, swallow your, your pride. pride a little bit. But I, the thing is that I don't But it's think a little less it, confrontational. But, Right, you're absolutely, and I struggle with non-confrontation because to me, I, when people ask me direct questions like, why is your breath smell bad? I'm like, well, maybe I just need to brush harder. I don't know. Like, I don't even take it personally. I'm like, just ask me. Yeah. And unfortunately, my value system of truth doesn't translate, you know, to everybody. We always have to think about what's the, what's the underlying thing you want to convey. I want to convey that I don't know what to treat in this patient and that it's helpful for me when I have that information. Mm -hmm. So no matter how you go about it, that clinician in that moment, I've told them, well, I don't know what to treat because it's not reported and it's helpful to me when it's included in the report. And then hopefully in that situation, the clinician is able to say like, oh, I never really thought about it. Like I send my patients mm -hmm. out okay. and... Next level. What happens when you have that conversation and they expect you to call every time for that information? They never, they still mm -hmm. never put in the report. You get the information, but you do have to do that follow-up call. Yeah. Well, I think that maybe after the second or third time that you call, this is, but this is like, it's in steps, right? Yeah, now, sure, now sure. it's been a couple of times and now I feel like it's a little more appropriate to be like, hey, it would be really helpful if you could just, you, you asked directly, like if you could include a little bit more in the physiology, it would make my life a lot easier in treating these patients. Um, you know, it takes time out of my day to, to have to call and, and of course you're never going to get them directly, right? Mm -hmm. It's, oh, leave a number, call me back, mm -hmm. you know, miss connections 50 times. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a, it's a step progression. Yeah. And so, and that's part of building the relationship. Exactly. Right. You want you want it to be positive to start out, but I think that if you keep getting pushback, and you get somebody that's a little bit not open to um, the needs of the patient, then you have to be a little bit more confrontational, and mm -hmm. it's hard, but you have to do it. It's for your patient. It's not mm -hmm. anything personal. It's. But I do think you have to take the appropriate steps beforehand, and that's just my own personal opinion. That you Nicole? know. Now, I just, I think looking back when I was um, dealing with the one therapist that I preferred not to send patients to, what I know now, I would go back maybe and ask probing questions and um, then it was easier to go around them. Right. But I think part of it is I've challenged myself over the years. I know what I didn't know then and what I still don't know and I want to be around people that stimulate me to do things better, to learn more, to add more information, because I've been guilty of, mm -hmm. whether it be a, a swallowing report or something else, just basic, this is what happened, and 
So I think it's personality of clinician, too. Of yeah, absolutely. You call me, you tell me, that I'm like, oh, my goodness, what a great idea. I never mm-hmm. thought about putting that in a report. Yeah. That's when I look at your reports. I'm like, oh, great idea. And mm-hmm. so I think we learn from each other if we're always in that learning mode. And, and, and the other aren't. thing is it's not a reflection of mm-hmm. you as an individual. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of my problem it's as a personal. human being is I don't take enough personally to understand that other people don't. So I just ask questions and assume they would, they they must know I don't mean them. Like mm-hmm. it's that paper that they wrote on it. They have the capacity, they just didn't know that yeah. I needed that, that's all. Mm-hmm. But rephrasing it your way, Alicia, probably is, you know, me going home and scratching my skin off. <laughs> you know, you have a, before the next yeah. call, be like, we just pray on this one. And well, and some people even my approach might be like, oh my gosh, it's too much, you know. But and you know what? But the other thing is, steps. absolutely, you have to take the steps. But I was just going to ask. Um, I, the other thing that could be useful um, before I ask you, Michelle, is sometimes I say to students, and I like to say in my class, I knew nothing about dysphagia when I graduated because mm-hmm. they keep looking at me as you're this swallowing expert. I'm never going to know anything. I suck, and it's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I knew nothing about swallowing when I graduated from grad school. Zero. Mm-hmm. I know a lot because of self-study. You should not have to do that because mm-hmm. I paid money for my tuition and I didn't get it. You should not be struggling with report writing. You should have got that direct mm-hmm. information like we did when we were writing reports for the school system. I know all about soap notes. Uh, I okay? <laughs> all about soap notes. So what I try to do in some situations is to go, look. You look back at my reports, they suck too, okay? But this is what helped me. I saw a report by this person, that person. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you put yourself in a position where you, they don't assume that you know so much or you're saying you know so much, mm-hmm. then it says, okay, so she's human. So, Michelle, what do you think? I think that's absolutely true. I think when you show your insecurities, it opens them up and um, just helps them drop their guard and be more open as well. So. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of goes to what Alicia was just saying about her, the way she would communicate with that other clinician is, and you said it much more eloquently because I was just going to say, sometimes you just got to play dumb and, you know, um, pretend that you don't know certain things or phrase things in a way Everybody like that. Everybody has their own approach. Yeah. It's just your own personal approach, but it just open up the communication yeah. and let it go from there. I think that that's one of the most essential pieces. I think you, people want to be right and they hate to be yes. wrong. But you have to make them feel more comfortable in being wrong. And a lot of people want to be better, but they don't know how. Yeah, right. and it feels we have a master's degree and you have a license. It feels weird to ask. Yeah, for about something that seems like it's it's basic, like report writing. We do it every day. And it says, "What have I been doing for the ten years of my right. career? How many people may not have gotten the best care?" Because one thing we do know is one report can follow you around for ten years. There are people who the only floral report floral they've had may have been five years ago, and that crummy, if you will, report, is guiding their diet for five years Mm -hmm. because they may never have another fluoro. All the more reason why documentation lasts longer than that conversation. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that you can treat as effectively on a conversation you had. So think of it this way. If there are cases that go to court, you can't say why you made your treatment decisions. Well, I called so-and-so and, and, you know, she had told me that um, the larynx wasn't working. That's not going to hold up. When they say, according to this report, this happened, right, but then we had a conversation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't hold up. They only see the paper trail, right? right? So we are all sort of, if we're talking about covering our butts, right, good reports actually covers our butt more than someone thinking, who cares about the SLP who thinks that you don't know what you're talking about? It's more important that the documentation shows you know what you're talking about. Well, I think when it comes to professional development, there's a billion courses on 
this device and this new treatment and this new thing, if, if you're a professional really want to get the most bang for your buck and make your practice better, I think report writing should be an area that you really decide to focus on. How do mm -hmm. I make my reports better? Because I do that every single day. And that has direct impact on your patients when you can write a really good report. Well, it goes back to the question that you asked a while ago and saying if there were a course that taught you how to write a good report, would mm -hmm. you go? And I think five years into my career, I probably would have said no because mm -hmm. I thought I was mm -hmm. doing things well, yeah. mm -hmm. but it was later in my career when I realized there were still a whole lot of things that I didn't know mm -hmm. that I would go back. So 10 years into my career, I would definitely say yes, but five years, maybe maybe yeah. not. And it's it's just a change in your perspective and what you know and, and what you don't know. And things are always changing. Exactly. And so if we're out stuck back in 1998, mm -hmm. then, oh my goodness, I feel sorry for my patients if, if I wasn't wanting to learn. And it's not about being a good writer. It's about communicating the impairment. Wait, being a communicated communication specialist? Are we, are we talking about? <laughs> it doesn't about... have to be this fancy like prose of a yeah. report, yeah. but just tell me, good when Lord, it, when why it did that person room. aspirate? Why? Yeah. Why did yeah. they aspirate? Tell me that. Yeah. Just can it, it can be in bullet points. I don't care. It's a tell me report, why they aspirated. Right? Mm -hmm. You know what we you know what we should do is when we post this podcast is actually post some reports that we think we wrote well. And, and by you mean you? No, all, all of us. Anybody, anybody yeah. that wants to. You know, post sections mm -hmm. of a report and just and, and the crummy ones too, right? Because there might be people <laughs> listening that are like, "What does a good report look mm -hmm. like?" Leash, you are the person with the good report no, around these parts. Well, I think that was really telling in your class How this do semester, I know actually, <laughs> when um, they had seen some of your reports, mm -hmm. and then you put up a, a report written by someone else, and I think that's what was really telling and drove the point home in the lab was that there are people that don't write great reports and those students had no clue what was going on and where to go from there, and they'd only seen um, reports written by you or examples given by Dr. Humbert, and once they saw something that was not on the same level, that's what drove the point home, is that there was wide variety and they needed to be better. Mm -hmm. So there are two analogies that I'd like to jump on that based on what you said, Michelle. The first is you said like five years into your career, you're like, oh no, no got this. I think five years is the teenage stage in post-SLP time, because it's kind of like, oh yeah, I've been doing this. I'm no longer a newbie. Mm -hmm. I'm not been there for 20 years and then it's sort of like you're third you're like so maybe my mom kind of like knew that guy <laughs> yes. that guy I was dating was trash now I have a kid with him what the hell she knew what she's talking about and then like 10 years and you're like so I'm doing the same thing over and over again and I don't know if this yeah. works right and then the other thing that you're talking about like I kind of feel like being in our class in some ways is sort of like people who are raised in with a silver spoon in their mouth and then they're like wait wait so People don't have dinner. Yeah. People don't have dinner. Not everybody has somebody who studies swallowing all day as mm -hmm. their teacher. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that if they're getting it from somebody else, it's not as good. It's just that we spend so much time trying to understand swallowing, and we spend so much time trying to write papers where anyone can read it and we go, I know exactly what you did. Yeah. So we naturally pull that into the class and say, even when they're talking in class, they're like, okay, so it went, and then the thing flipped. I'm like, ah, 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 ah. I need nouns that I can follow. <laughs> by it, do you mean bolus? And by flip, what, what do you mean? Thing, so yeah. I keep cutting them off, and they don't love it, and saying, I need you to say that sentence again in such a way that I can follow you. Yeah. Right? Can I, can I myth bust? Myth bust? Are we here? <laughs> myth bust. Writing a good report does not have to take a long time. Yep. I think there's a misconception that, well, I just don't have time to write a good report, and I see 50 floors a day, and you know I can just get the bare bones, and that's it. 
writing a good report does not have to take a long time. It's about choosing salient information, conveying the message, because you can write all day about every piece of the swallow, but if you don't tell me why the person aspirated, it doesn't yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I was thinking about that when you were talking about all the pieces that you could put into a report yes. and we were talking about the different levels. Mm -hmm. If you do nothing else at all, identify yeah. the primary pathophysiology. Oh my god, mm -hmm. that is so important. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, if you go what to court, you have to have what they're charged with. Mm -hmm. You can't be like, we about to figure it out here in court what this man did wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. What was the charge? You know, what is the charge? And then we'll figure out the extent of it. Was it real? Wasn't it? But, so let me just challenge you on this. How much do you think this, the underlying issue, is understanding swallowing well enough to give that information? So that's always the... Um, well, I wasn't going to go thing. there, but you're well, going there. Okay, okay, okay. Because... <laughs> Controversy. Prince is, because okay, this, is, this is, is the last, this, this is the final layer, right? This is the final layer where... Right now you should know that Alicia's hand is straight up in the air, which is praising God, <laughs> and she is about to throw it down. Give it to us, Leash. Because, all right, if you want to keep growing as a speech pathologist, you get your report writing down, right? But here's the existential question. If you're identifying the pathophysiology and using that to describe why there was airway invasion or residue, and you do this beautiful job, it doesn't matter if you didn't identify the correct pathophysiology yeah. <laughs> in the first place. If it's inaccurate. If it's inaccurate. So that's the next layer is getting better at understanding swallow physiology, not over-identifying things that are normal. And and you mean not over-diagnosing? Because over, if you over-identify oh, things that are over normal that are actually normal. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Over, not saying yeah. things that are normal as impaired. Mm -hmm. um, because I get all the time a report that says, patient had, with thin liquids, bolus had reached the piriform sinuses prior to swallow initiation, therefore patient had delayed swallow. Bonnie Martin Harris, 2001, boom. Yeah. <laughs> Myth busted. Myth busted, <laughs> FYI. Normal people initiate a swallow. Hey, that's what wait, 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 wait. Nice. Wait, that speech pathologist probably initiates her swallow with the bolus and the piriform Normal every time. All the time. So then you read that report and you're like, wow, beautiful report, but I don't but know inaccurate. if that's actually a normal swallow or not. So it's like, man. But, you know, so is we ain't going to solve all the world's problems right now. We can't. But, but do ahead. better. That's always the say, final thing. To me, the biggest thing is you need to learn. You need to be continuing to learn. Mm -hmm. and Challenge yourself. Yeah. I'm sure there's an 80s song that really goes along with this. Controversy. Yeah. Sing it. I don't know how that song goes. Dun, 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 I was thinking more like expressive. I told you, so, no, no, I told you it was a deep cut. If you really know Prince, then you know Controversy. Yeah. I'm just saying, just put it out there. <laughs> To put it out there, and he just died a year ago. Okay, but so what? To close, we have a number of things that we discussed. But before we do that, can we get a drum roll for the thing that will solve all these problems? The treating clinician gets access to the fluoro. Done. Mm. Mind blown. There's a lot of mind blown around here. That's the biggest one of the biggest take home things that I end and say solutions. Get access to the fluoro. Yeah, but it doesn't replace the report. You still no, need the, the report, report. The report is necessary. Yes, because that's the document that's that the chart. Absolutely, what... but 
the treating clinician can still use that fluoro to make decisions. It is just like an x-ray is documentation. Mm -hmm. A fluoro can be documentation. Sure, it's a little bit step forward, but people use <coughs> MRI scans and EPIC. They can pull those up for a reason. Sure, right. They might be looking for something different than the original report was meant to look for. Right. And so that objective information doesn't change. Your interpretation can change, and we recognize as clinicians, interpretations change or goal of the objective report. For instance, if you've ever had an MRI for your knee, but you come back later, you have serious calf issues, and your calf was in the picture, they're not gonna go, let's do a new one if we need a baseline. We wanna know what happened five years ago. Oh, you had an MRI in this region. Let's go back and look at a different part. So that's great. Yeah. I mean, so totally. that kinds of thing is something, another step to move forward to. If you're working with a place where they record floros or you can have access to it, I bet you will keep them honest. Mm. God forbid that report doesn't match the floro and you as a treating clinician goes, so you said here that uh, the UES didn't open. Uh, kind of looks like stuff went through, right? And of course we would do it Alicia's way where five conversations later you'd finally mention it, but oh it gosh. would get done. <laughs> I just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we'll end on that. I know. What closing remarks do you guys have? Just talk to each other. Mm. Just do you know that that's the name of the report of the article that yeah. I just said that they wanted oh, yeah. to be called "Talk to, to each, each Other." other. Yeah, Seriously. Well, there you go. We're, always keep in mind it's not personal. That we're professionals. We have a license for a reason, and part of that license includes being able to have difficult conversations, open lines of communication, and ultimately, all of this is not to win a Pulitzer Prize in report writing, it's about our patients exactly and reducing the amount of floras that they need to have and making sure that we're promoting treatment specificity for our therapists out there that are doing awesome rehab for our patients. And yeah. Nicole? Just relationships. I mean, the more relationships we can have with the, the different clinicians makes a huge difference. And I'm always learning that's mm -hmm. the biggie I think for mm -hmm. clinicians and it's okay to ask questions mm -hmm. I mean I'm I've been a clinician since 98 and I've been going to Dr. Humbert's swallowing class <laughs> when I can and I love it but I learning. love it when you're there because you have a perspective like when you were in our last class I said Nicole is there any truth to this because I think that they think I'm that mom that doesn't want them to date the kid and I'm like tell them about the time that you dated him and he'd be like you up right you came from knocked up so now am I right yeah. am I right so there you go and I was able to say Nicole Am I am I lying about the fact that there might you might have there are places where there's ninety percent productivity? Mm -hmm. Am I lying about the fact that sometimes there's pressure to treat somebody who has no nothing to treat? Mm -hmm. You know, because they can't even. They're like, well, why would anyone do that? That doesn't sound right. It's like you're 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 young and naive. Mm -hmm. So, we appreciate you being there as well. One L. One L. I was just going to echo pretty much exactly what Alicia said, and I think. We have to be willing to drop our guard, admit when we're wrong, seek education, and like you said, ultimately remember it's all about the patient. So the decisions that we make influence them and their lives and their quality of life in such a way that um, we really need to take responsibility for that and do what's right for them. Yeah. I think it would be nice to, I mean, obviously we're going to post this on Facebook, but I'd love for people to comment on maybe a time that you learned something from somebody else and changed your practice Love that. because of a conversation that happened that somebody said to you, hey, have you tried this? Or, hey, this is really helpful when X, and you immediately change your practice because of it. Because I think that we can grow as a field and as professionals if we even open up about these stories and say, mm -hmm. hey, 
there was one time when somebody, you know, gave the suggestion to me, and it, I do it ever since now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or there have been times where I realized that there was tragedy at the end of some decision I made. You yeah. know what I mean? And you're like, don't want that. Sometimes it's not because, hey, someone made a good suggestion. Someone's like, pointed out, that sucked. Yeah. And it didn't, it hurt at the time to hear. It's like, oh, wow. But you will never go back to it. Mm. So sometimes you learn because of something you did right, and someone says, keep that up. Sometimes you learn because of something you did wrong. Mm. Either way, you learned. Yeah. And we have to be open in life to both situations. People post stories, we know they made it to the end of the podcast. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's going to post any stories. I know. I know that means like, no, or, or it means that they're, they're a little hurt. They're a little crushed after this. Like they need a minute. They need a minute. They heard it all the way through and they're a little crushed. Yeah. So.